Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. So, I was reading that editorial in the Cleveland News. Do you think Dr. Shepard really killed his wife? You hush. We're nurses at his family's hospital. We can't just discuss... Everyone else is. It just happened two weeks ago. A patient asked me the other day if Dr. Shepard was innocent. Of course, I defended him, but I did sort of feel like I had to. Are you saying you actually think he's the killer? With all the lies he's told, all the women he was seeing, it just makes him seem untrustworthy. Gosh, wherever Sue Hayes is, I bet she's in a state. Well, what does Sue have to do with his wife's murder? So he's a cheater. Doesn't make him a prince, but it doesn't make him a killer. It doesn't not make him a killer, though. Enough gossip, ladies. Back to work. Or they'll sick Dr. Sam on ya. In the summer of 1954, all anyone could talk about in Bay Village, Ohio, was the murder of housewife Marilyn Shepard. Her 30-year-old neurosurgeon husband, Sam, woke up early on July 4th. He'd slept on the couch after a dinner party with his wife and friends at his home on Lake Erie. Marilyn's screams jolted him awake. Sam! Sam! Sam raced upstairs and was attacked by a bushy-haired intruder. Sam chased the intruder out of the house where they continued their fight on the shores of the lake before Sam was knocked unconscious. He returned home to discover that his wife had been savagely beaten to death in bed. His son, Sam Jr., known as Chip, had slept through it, and the family dog, Coco, never made a sound. Sam called his good friend Spencer Houck, mayor of Bay Village. As he waited for help and took stock of his own injuries, Sam must have realized he was entering the darkest period of his life. But he couldn't have known that the trials and tribulations he'd soon endure would be headline news for decades to come. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the murder of Marilyn Shepard and the trial of her husband, Sam Shepard, one of the 20th century's most infamous murder cases. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it immensely if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. As Sam recovered from his face and neck injuries at Bayview Hospital on July 4th, 1954, Another Dr. Sam came to a controversial conclusion at the crime scene. Dr. Sam Gerber was Cuyahoga County's media-savvy, publicly elected coroner, and coroners were the ones tasked with investigating suspicious deaths. He was the man in charge of the investigation now. Gerber ignored local police's initial theory that Marilyn had been killed in a robbery gone wrong. His theory? Sam Shepard killed his own wife. Family members are often investigated in domestic crimes, but Gerber seemed almost too steadfast in his belief. 
He felt the ransacked Shepherd home didn't look like a robbery as much as it looked like a staged robbery. Bay Village police were in awe of the Shepherd family and their hospital, which employed many locals. Gerber was presumably a more objective outsider, except for the fact that he may have been holding a grudge. The Shepherds often appeared in newspapers to report their ER successes. Maybe Gerber felt annoyed they were hogging the spotlight. Other sources say Gerber was upset about rumors that the Shepherds performed abortions at their clinic. Whatever his issue was, it apparently led him to make a malicious statement about the Shepherds to a Bayview resident that he met. I'm going to get them someday. Maybe this was finally Dr. Gerber's chance to make that happen. At the Shepherd House, police scoured the area for evidence. Spencer Houck's teenage son Larry rounded up his friends to help. Larry found a bag with Sam's keychain, fraternity ring, and watch. All items that Sam said he had on him the night before. The watch was bloodstained and had condensation on it. The time was stopped at 4.15 a.m. Right when Sam claims he had a tussle with the killer by the water. So it's possible that the watch died when exposed to water during the fight. If Sam lied, perhaps the watch stopped for other reasons. It was an automatic watch that did not need to be wound, but that doesn't mean it couldn't have broken down. If the killer was a thief, they could have knocked Sam out, stolen the items, and hidden them. That's what Sam said he thought happened. But why would a robber who had just killed someone leave evidence behind? Well, if Sam was the killer, it could have been another effort by him to stage a robbery and throw police off his tracks. There were too many questions, and Sam was safely ensconced at his family's hospital and sticking to his blurry recollection of that night. Sam's fuzzy memory may have been from a concussion. If he was struck in the head like he stated, brain imaging back then wouldn't have been able to diagnose one. Maybe his lack of clarity was from a brain injury. The police hoped that the autopsy would shed more light on what happened. The man who performed Marilyn's autopsy was Dr. Lester Adelson, Gerber's trusted, Harvard-trained deputy. This is what Adelson found. The rate at which rigor mortis set in backed up Sam's story that Marilyn died around 4.30 a.m. Someone had bludgeoned her 35 times, 15 of which were on her head. Some cuts went so deep that they exposed her skull, and the entire bone structure of her face had cracked apart. Some of her teeth were broken and a fingernail was torn off, indicating that she may have tried to bite or scratch her attacker. The blue tint to her fingernails indicated she may have been asphyxiated. Adelson noted the presence of a white substance in Marilyn's genitals, but couldn't conclusively determine that it was semen. He didn't order a test for a rape kit or investigate for evidence of genital bruising or tearing. But given that Marilyn was found with her top pushed up and pants pulled down, he really should have. But he was getting orders from Gerber, who was adamant this wasn't rape by an outsider, but rather an act of domestic violence. It's odd that no one second-guessed Gerber. But he'd been the publicly elected coroner for 17 years and investigated 150 deaths a year. He probably had a lot of faith and trust from the authorities. Also, sexual violence against women isn't always treated with the urgency it deserves, even today. So I can only imagine it was even harder to address it in the 1950s. Adelson discovered the gender of Marilyn's four-month-old fetus. Had Marilyn lived, she would have had a new baby brother for Chip. Adelson's final report lists the cause of death as homicide by assault, brought on by massive head injuries. No murder weapon was found at the Shepherd House, but it's possible that there would have been residue from it in Marilyn's facial wounds. That's why pathologists wash bodies only after they've collected every bit of physical evidence. And even when they do wash them, they set up drains or filters to catch residue, especially when dealing with a murder and a missing weapon. But Adelson apparently washed Marilyn's face before analyzing her wounds for residue, which means that key evidence could have been lost. Adelson was supposedly great at his job, 
but it seems like he skipped some crucial steps in this autopsy. Maybe when your boss, Dr. Gerber, tells you he already knows what happened, you skip certain steps. Later on July 4th, Cleveland homicide detectives Robert Schotka and Pat Garreau entered the fray. Gerber told them his suspicions, so they decided to interrogate Sam in his own hospital bed on the day his wife was killed. This was within their right because it was before the existence of Miranda rights, a suspect's right to remain silent and have an attorney present. Dr. Shepard, would you say your marriage was a troubled one? A few disagreements, maybe, but nothing major. Would you say Marilyn was faithful to you? We don't mean to pry, but we were just talking to your neighbors, and they mentioned that many men found Marilyn desirable. Maybe even your friend Dr. Hoverston, who was just recently your house guest. Are you saying Lester Hoverston did this? Uh, no, no. He was 40 miles away in Kent. But were there others? There have been other men who were attracted to her, but Marilyn never... If she strayed... I'd understand if you were upset. Passions do boil over. Detective, I'm a doctor. I work to save lives. I'm not- It's just hard for us to understand. You say the intruder knocked you out twice, but you couldn't recognize him apart from his bushy hair. It was dark, and I was disoriented and scared for my life. Your house looks like it's been ransacked, but nothing of value was actually stolen. And now we found the personal belongings from your pocket near your house. And there's blood all over your watch. What are you saying, Detective Shotka? I'm not sure what Garreau thinks, but I think you killed your wife. I could never. I... I loved my wife. Marilyn Shepard was killed on the morning of July 4th, 1954. Her husband, Sam, was arrested on July 30th, 1954. In the 26 days between those events, the pressure to arrest Sam didn't come from overwhelming evidence and careful investigation. In fact, forensic leads weren't getting the authorities anywhere. Dr. Gerber set out to find Sam's missing white shirt. Spencer and Esther Hauck found Sam shirtless, as he allegedly lost his shirt in the fight with the intruder. This was a problem for Gerber, because it meant that the only blood found on Sam's clothes was a small spot of blood on his pants. This wasn't nearly enough to paint him as a murderer. Whoever beat Marilyn to death would have been totally covered in her blood. And Gerber felt that that was the reason Sam's shirt went missing. It was too blood-soaked to remain on Sam without confirming his guilt. On July 14th, a torn shirt was found near the Shepherd home in Sam's size. However, there was no blood on it and no guarantee that it was Sam's, so Gerber had to move on. Adelson, I need you to find out if Marilyn's baby was really Sam's. Why? Fetal blood type is hard to determine, especially at such an early stage in the pregnancy. Because if we have any evidence that the baby wasn't Sam's, that would be quite the motive for her murder, if he found out about it. But blood tests were inconclusive, and there was no evidence to support his theory that Marilyn had had an affair and Sam reacted violently to it. Dr. Gerber seemed to be throwing everything at the wall to see what stuck. He was dealing with a shocking murder and felt the victim's husband was using his privilege to evade the consequences. He even thought Sam was faking the head and neck injury that kept him secluded in the hospital. Sam's family hired William Corrigan, a powerful Cleveland attorney, to represent him. Though Corrigan was 68 and nearing the end of a celebrated career, the Shepherds still trusted him to handle the case. As soon as my client recovers from his injuries, he will make every effort to aid the police in solving this heinous crime. No more questions. Sam willingly spoke to the police, but refused to take a lie detector test on multiple occasions. This caused Deputy Sheriff Carl Rossback to claim, He doesn't have to if he doesn't want to, but I intend to keep asking until he does. Sam claimed that his emotional state would skew the test. And it's true that a heightened emotional state would produce inconclusive results. But with a pricey lawyer and a refusal to take a polygraph, the public and the press couldn't shake the feeling that Sam was hiding something. The Cleveland Press newspaper was especially dogged, thanks to its editor-in-chief, Louis B. Seltzer. 
The press had the largest circulation of any Ohio paper thanks to Seltzer's hard-hitting journalism. His nickname was Mr. Cleveland, and Mr. Cleveland thought Sam Shepard was getting away with murder. Seltzer printed an editorial titled, Too Much Time Lost, in the July 9th edition of the Cleveland Press. In it, he opined that the Shepard family intimidated the authorities. For whatever reasons, the investigative authorities were slow in getting started, fumbling when they did, awkward in breaking through the protective barriers of the family, and far less aggressive than they should have been in following up on clues, tracks, and evidence. Ironically, it printed on the day Sam returned to the site of Marilyn's murder to help police reenact the events, so he wasn't entirely evasive. The Cleveland Press stirred up more trouble when they printed a story about the police finding letters from Sam's family to Marilyn. The letters contradicted Sam's assertion that his marriage was free of major troubles, as they addressed the rough patch the couple went through in 1950, when they lived in Los Angeles and Sam cheated on Marilyn. In one letter, Marilyn's sister-in-law, Dorothy, urged her to forgive Sam. Rich and I feel that Sam is too fine a man, with a good brain, which certainly will make him realize how foolish his actions are. Hold on to yourself, Marilyn and try in every possible way to remain the ideal wife. In another, Marilyn's brother-in-law Richard was far more blunt. The real problem, though, is for you both to frankly admit you've made a mess of things, to realize that you owe it to one another and Chip to make this marriage go, even if it kills you both, which it won't. Soon, everyone had a story to tell the cops like the shepherd's friend, Nancy Ahern, who ate dinner with them on the night of the murder. Marilyn was upset because she thought Sam was seeing that nurse from the Bayview again when they went on their California trip. Apparently, he bought a very nice lady's watch. Cleveland police detectives had taken over the investigation from the Bay Village police. But Bay Village officers like police chief John Eaton still contributed bits of local gossip they heard. I heard this from Spencer Hout, but apparently any time Sam and Marilyn argued about his behavior, he flew into a terrible rage. Terrible. Uh, But you didn't hear it from me. Other rumors veered towards the wilder side of things. I hear all those rich folks in Bay Village have these wild, boozy, wife-swapping parties. Things were bound to get out of hand. Marilyn said she thought Sam was sterile because of all the time he spends by the x-ray machines. If he is... Whose baby was she carrying? Everyone knows he was cheating with Susan Hayes. But did you know he had an affair with a patient, Julie Lossman? Her husband runs the dealership where Sam got his Jaguar. Wonder if his wife was part of the deal. That rumor was true, as later admitted in a newspaper by a regretful Julie. I've never been interested in anyone but my husband. I must have lost my head. I'm so sick of the whole thing I could vomit. Then there was the story from Jesse Dill, who claimed that a month before, she met an unnamed woman resembling Marilyn at the beach. The woman called her son Chip and confided that she was debating a divorce. She said her husband cheated on her, but a divorce would be hard since she was four months pregnant. But you know, she didn't think her husband was so terrible for cheating anymore. It's like she understood it. Why do you suppose that is? Well. She told me she'd been cheating on her husband, too. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In the summer of 1954, police questioned Jesse Dill about the Marilyn Shepard murder case. Jesse claimed to have spoken with Marilyn in the months before the murder and said that Marilyn confessed to having an affair outside of her marriage. Jesse passed a polygraph test, but we have to wonder, did she really see Marilyn or was she just convinced that whoever she met was Marilyn? If it was, did Marilyn cheat on Sam and did it drive him to kill her? One rumor pointed to Marilyn's potential lover. 
Spencer Houck, part-time Bay Village mayor and close friend of the Shepherd family. Apparently, the older man doted on her, gave her the best cuts of meat from the butcher shop he owned, and even helped with her son. Spen, it's Marilyn. Chip needs to be picked up from school and my bowling league game is running long. Sam's too busy, of course. Don't worry. I'm always around if you need me. A delivery man told detectives that he once made a delivery to the Shepherd home and saw Spencer embracing an upset Marilyn. Sam's brother, Stephen, pressed detectives to investigate Spencer as a suspect. Ironic, since Spencer was the trusted friend that Sam called for help when he found Marilyn's body. But the Shepherds were trying to convince the world that Sam wasn't a murderer, so I'm sure that friendship mattered less at that point. Spencer passed a polygraph, though he had to retake it after results were fuzzy on two questions. What happened to the shirt? And are you telling the truth to all answers? But after the second test, he was ruled out as a suspect. These rumors paint two different pictures of Marilyn. Was she a needy housewife terrified of her cheating husband? Or a dissatisfied woman considering a divorce and having her own affair? Well, both versions give Sam a motive for murder. Anger at having to stay married to Marilyn or anger that she decided to cheat on him. So the next time Sam voluntarily visited detectives on July 10th, a lot of their questions were about his love life. Did you ever have an affair with Sue Hayes? I wouldn't call it an affair. But we have been good friends for some time, which was known to my wife. Is it true that you socialized a lot with her? In the hospital, yes. I wouldn't call it socialized. We talked, became good friends. Nothing more than good friends? No. Why would Sam lie? Was he still trying to save face? It was apparently part of a legal strategy by Sam's attorney, Bill Corrigan. Bill, everyone knows about Sue. I can't deny having sexual relations. Doesn't matter. Maybe your nosy neighbors are eating up these stories about your love life now. But if we go to trial, a judge will rule those questions as irrelevant and inadmissible in a criminal court. Perhaps Corrigan was correct in theory, but Sam's cheating was definitely relevant in the court of public opinion. As the case became international news, Sam's former lover, Susan Hayes, was pulled back into Sam's orbit. She was forced to leave L.A. and return to Cleveland to answer the police's questions about the affair. Nobody thought she was a suspect, but she did seem like a good reason for Marilyn's murder, the woman Sam could have been with had it not been for what he felt was his clingy pregnant wife. It couldn't have been easy for Susan, who was already trying to start her life over. In an interview with the Cleveland Press, she stated, I feel a lot better now since I've told the truth. The only thing that bothers me is what's going to happen to my folks. I've had a long talk with myself, but I feel awfully sorry for them. I hope my grandfather hasn't heard of this. I was always his favorite, and I know he'd be disappointed. The press published articles that mixed vague case facts with salacious stories of Sam's sex life, but they also demanded better from Gerber. On July 21st, the Cleveland Press published another editorial titled, Why No Inquest? Do it now, Dr. Gerber. An inquest empowers use of the subpoena. It makes possible the examination of every possible witness, suspect, relative, records, and papers available anywhere. It puts the investigation itself into the record. And what's most important of all, it sometimes solves crimes. What, Coroner Gerber, is the answer to the question, Why don't you call an inquest into this murder? In layman's terms, an inquest is a judicial inquiry convened to determine a person's cause of death. Like a trial, an inquest makes use of evidence and witnesses. Unlike in a trial, however, suspects aren't allowed to defend themselves. Gerber scheduled an inquest for the next day. It lasted three days and was open to the public. Sam's lawyer was forced to sit in the stands and was later kicked out for interjecting, much to the crowd's delight. You can't do this. I have a right to be here for my clients. It was the trial before the real trial. On July 22nd, the same day the Cleveland Plain Dealer ran an editorial titled, Get That Killer, 
Sam gave another account of his fight with the bushy-haired intruder. But Sam didn't win the crowd over with his reserved clinical style or the reflective sunglasses and neck brace he wore, which made him look even more mysterious. You recall encountering someone, but you cannot recall having received any blows. Is that what you want me to understand? I recall, hazily, a number of blows. I can't say specifically with what or how. It seems as though I was struck down from behind. That is the feeling I have. Of course, he told this tale extensively over the past few weeks, so maybe Sam was just tired of repeating the same story. Gerber grilled Sam about Susan. Sam denied having the affair again. The inquest made Gerber a hero in the eyes of the adoring crowd who cheered and hugged him when the three-day event came to an end. But that didn't satiate the press. The Cleveland Press July 30th editorial was titled, Quit Stalling, Bring Him In. This is murder. This is no parlor game. This is no time to permit anybody, no matter who he is, to outwit, stall, fake, or improvise devices to keep away from the police or from the questioning that anybody in his right mind knows a murder suspect should be subjected to at a police station. The case had reached a boiling point. At 10 p.m. on July 30, 1954, police arrived at the home of Sam's parents, Richard and Ethel. Sam was staying with them, but it wouldn't be for long. Just tell us, Sam. Get it off your chest. The only thing I'll say is what I've always said. I did not kill Marilyn. In early August 1954, Sam was questioned for over 20 hours by two teams of detectives, but he still wouldn't admit to killing his wife. A grand jury officially indicted him for first-degree murder on August 17th, setting the stage for an October trial. The court would be presided over by 70-year-old judge Edward Blythen, former mayor of Cleveland. He was thrust into the public eye, suddenly in charge of a case that the whole country and many around the world would eagerly follow. Back then, TV news was in its infancy. The story of Sam and Marilyn Shepard was the perfect scandal for the industry to cut its teeth on. And for all the public discussion, cartoons, editorials, and news coverage, it wouldn't be unfair to call this the O.J. Simpson trial of the 1950s. But one way this case was different was the fact that Judge Blythen didn't sequester the jury. In very high-profile cases, jurors are often kept isolated so they can remain free from influence by news, gossip, or outside parties. In the O.J. trial, jurors were kept sequestered in a hotel for eight and a half months. But sequestration is an unusual and costly move, and that's why Blythen probably didn't consider it, especially for local jurors who are likely already familiar with the murder from the summer's news stories. Well, maybe he would have if he had known how big a media circus this case would soon become. The jurors' information was publicly available, and soon their names, photos, and addresses were published in papers, giving the scandal-starved public a look at who would be deciding Sam's fate. Apart from making them unwitting celebrities, lack of sequestration meant the jurors were exposed to every bit of outlandish gossip about the case. This is Walter Winchell reporting live. In a shocking twist, a woman arrested for robbery in New York claims Sam Shepard is the father of her child. Is she another entry in the killer doctor's long list of mistresses? This story was false, but it still worried Sam's attorney. Judge Blythen, I don't know what effect it had on the minds of any of these jurors. And I can't find out unless inquiry is made. Well, how would you ever, in any jury, avoid that kind of thing? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I would like to ask you, and I want you to be perfectly frank and honest about it. If any of you heard the Winchell broadcast, either by radio or by television last night... I did. Would that have any effect on your judgment? No. 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 Blythen moved on. He had already come to the conclusion that shielding the jury from the press was impossible. After all, reporters flocked to the courthouse every day. One reporter was Dorothy Kilgallen, a New York-based journalist who also was a panelist on the popular TV show, What's My Line? Kilgallen was eager to prove herself as more than a celebrity gossip journalist, but she was taken aback by this trial. 
The fact that at this stage it is equally possible for the rational mind to find him innocent or guilty is what may make the Shepherd trial a celebrated cause to rank with the classic puzzle of Lizzie Borden. The prosecution was led by John J. Mann, who fought to prove that Sam killed Marilyn after a disagreement over his affairs. Mann didn't have much evidence. To compensate, he displayed a slideshow of Marilyn's bloody body, allowing the horror to sink in. As you can see from these uh, very large photos, the blows were severe. The hemorrhaging flooded the lungs. She drowned in her own blood. The prosecution ran with the little evidence they had. They claimed that Sam's missing t-shirt indicated that he'd gotten blood on it and hid it. They went after Sam's inability to recall the bushy-haired intruder who killed Marilyn. Maybe his fuzziness was from a concussion, but Sam's team wouldn't have been able to come up with that explanation back then. The fact that the family dog Coco, who was known to be a barker, made no sound that night seemed to indicate that the dog knew the attacker. Mayen also put forth the theory that Sam staged a robbery, including the two neatly ransacked house and the bloody watch found in the bag outside. One crucial element the prosecution was missing was a murder weapon. None had been found, and since Lester Adelson had washed Marilyn's face during the autopsy, no fragments were available for analysis either. But Gerber ingeniously sidestepped that issue by showing a slide of Marilyn's blood-soaked pillow and putting forth the theory that the missing weapon was one that only a doctor could have. I turned over the pillow that was at the head of the bed and found a large blood stain on the opposite side of the pillow. And on that pillow was an impression of an instrument. What type of instrument? A surgical instrument. In the largest stain is the impression of a two-bladed instrument that has teeth on each end of the blade. And the other marks here are blood splashes. The unusual pattern of the blood droplets leading down the stairs could easily be from such an instrument. Objection! The picture was taken on the 5th of July, and it was handled by Dr. Gerber and other persons before it was taken. We object to the picture and we object to the projection. But the prosecution's greatest ace in the hole had nothing to do with the crime scene evidence. It had to do with their star witness, Susan Hayes. When was the first time you had sexual relations with Dr. Shepard? When I was working at Bayview Hospital the first time, just before I left in December 1952 to work in Cleveland. Where did these relations take place? in automobiles, and in the apartment above the Fairview Clinic. Susan's testimony went against Sam's assertion at the inquest that they were just friends. It was clear to the court that Sam Shepard was a liar. Sam's lawyer had his work cut out for him. He had a few witnesses who claimed to see what could have been a bushy-haired man in the Shepard's neighborhood. He also had doctors who confirmed that Sam sustained real injuries the night of the murder, ones that couldn't have been self-inflicted. But those could have been from Marilyn fighting back. It didn't help that one of the doctors who testified about Sam's medical condition was his brother Stephen. Corrigan had facts on his side. Sam's affairs were an established part of his marriage, and he and Marilyn had fought about them before. If they had another fight, why would it suddenly lead Sam to killing Marilyn? What Corrigan didn't have was a client who was even remotely in the public's good graces. Sam was humiliated by having to admit that he lied to the police about his affair with Susan. He was already a liar in the jury's eyes and his three days of testimony saw prosecutors poke holes in his fuzzy story. For example, if Sam was right downstairs, how did the killer manage to hit Marilyn 35 times before Sam got to her? Well, the fact that the murder didn't even wake Sam and Marilyn's son down the hall could indicate the killer was just brutally efficient. But there were still questions. For example, Sam stated he was knocked unconscious in the bedroom at first, could one blow have really knocked out this young, fit man? The court was skeptical. Isn't it a fact that you beat your wife to death, and after you killed her, didn't you run out of the house towards the beach and injure yourself by falling down the steps or jumping off the platform of the beach house? That's absolutely untrue, sir. And I think it's very unfair. At over two months, Sam's trial was the longest criminal trial America had seen so far. 
So excitement was high as the jury returned with a verdict on December 21st. We find the defendant not guilty of murder in the first degree, but guilty of murder in the second degree. It is now the judgment of the court that you be imprisoned in a penitentiary in the state of Ohio for life. First degree murder is premeditated, which the jury found Sam not guilty of. Second degree murders are deemed to be unplanned, and that's what they thought happened with Sam. He was spared from the death penalty, but sentenced to life in prison. Despite the fact that she'd gotten more fame and notoriety from reporting on it, the verdict still disturbed journalist Dorothy Kilgallen. The prosecutors for the state of Ohio did not prove he was guilty any more than they proved there are pinheaded men on Mars. This is the first time I have ever seen what I believe to be a miscarriage of justice in a murder case. It is the first time I have ever been scared by the jury system. And I mean scared. Sam's carefully groomed legacy was destroyed, and so was his family. His seven-year-old son was effectively an orphan. His father, Richard, already had stomach cancer, but in late 1954, it suddenly got worse. On January 7, 1955, Sam's mother, Ethel, shot herself with her son Stephen's gun. She was the mother of a convicted killer and the wife of a dying doctor, and the pressure was just too much. She left a note for Stephen. Dear Steve, I... I just can't manage alone without father. Eleven days after Ethel's suicide, cancer claimed Richard's life. Sam was allowed to attend both funerals, but had to wear shackles. Sam was at rock bottom, with no reason to believe it would get better. He couldn't have ever predicted that a decade later, he'd be set free, and the hunt for his wife's killer would begin anew. In the years after Sam Shepard's first trial, his defense team fought hard to overturn the conviction. They filed their first initial appeal on January 3, 1955, but Judge Blythen denied it. But a promising break did come in January after they hired forensic expert Paul Kirk to further investigate the murder scene. Kirk was a pioneer of modern bloodstain pattern analysis, and his use of the technique at the Shepard's home yielded significant clues to the killer's identity and methods. Kirk, this is a 19-page report. I'll read it, but give me the basics. First things first, there's blood all over that bedroom. The killer would have to have been covered in blood droplets after they were done. But Sam only had one blood stain on his pants leg. In fact, there was only one part of the wall that wasn't covered in blood, and that would be where the killer's body was blocking the spray. Now, as near as I can tell, the killer would have had to be left-handed. But Sam is right-handed. Indeed. Also, I don't buy that the weapon was a surgical instrument. From what I can reconstruct, it was a cylindrical object, less than 12 inches long. Maybe a heavy flashlight. So the killer could have been anyone, not just a doctor. Corgan, I'm not here to tell you your man is innocent. I'm just here to tell you what the blood says. Speaking of which, there's a blood stain on the wall that isn't Sam's or Marilyn's. That means there was a third person in the room that night, right? And that person was bleeding. Maybe Marilyn bit him. They found her teeth at the crime scene. It's possible that they were ripped from her mouth when she bit him. Sam had no open wounds that night. If she bit someone, it wasn't him. It's also my opinion, based on the fact that her pants were pushed down, this was a sex slaying. Someone came in and tried to violate her, and she fought back with all of her might. Kirk's theory seemed to be further validated in July 1955 when a swimmer found a dented flashlight in Lake Erie. Of course, it's possible that this just meant that Sam used a flashlight to kill Marilyn, but still, Corrigan quickly filed another motion for an appeal. But the Court of Appeals denied him, as did the Ohio Supreme Court in 1956. Though admitting that the 1954 trial definitely took place in a carnival atmosphere, the court felt the verdict had been just fair enough. It seemed like nothing could change the minds of the public and the court. 
despite other intriguing clues popping up over the years. In November 1959, Bay Village police officers arrested the Shepherd's window washer, Richard Eberling, for his habit of stealing trinkets from his clients' homes. Eberling had frequently interacted with Marilyn and was known to be a little peculiar, but maybe society had made him that way. Eberling, born Richard Lenardic, grew up in foster homes where his tantrums and dishonesty were the cause of much trouble. Of course, it didn't help that the doctors thought he was more effeminate than other boys and made the highly reprehensible choice of giving him hormone treatment to try and force him to be more masculine. Whatever issues he had, it's clear that doctors at the time simply weren't enlightened or equipped enough to manage them. He was eventually raised by George and Christine Eberling, and later changed his last name to Eberling. His foster father, George, died when Eberling was 17 in 1946. Family members say that the fatal stroke was brought on when George accidentally drank poison instead of his medication. They suspected someone had switched the bottles intentionally, but could never prove it. By his mid-twenties, Eberling was a successful window cleaner to the rich families of Bay Village. He still indulged in his childhood habit of petty theft, but when the police arrested him in 1959, they made an eerie discovery. Among Eberling's stolen objects were two of Marilyn's rings. Eberling took them from a closed box with Marilyn's name on it. He found it in the home of Richard Shepard, Sam's brother, who stored Marilyn's possessions while Sam was in jail. Richard and his wife were Eberling's clients, which explains how he got access to the box. Eberling stole from other clients, so we can't fully say the robbery was linked to Marilyn's murder. But police did initially think that the murder was the result of a robbery gone wrong. And here was a man who had a troubled past, familiarity, and access to Marilyn's house, and a penchant for theft. The police questioned Eberling about Marilyn and received a surprising admission about an accident at the Shepherd house earlier in the week that Marilyn died. Did anything happen while you were there? Yes. I cut my finger while taking the storm screen out of the window by the kitchen sink. I went about my work throughout the house and down into the basement and dripped blood in various parts of the house. Eberling voluntarily admitted that he dripped blood all over the house, which could be the blood that investigators tracked down the stairway. That information about the blood was public, so Eberling might have known he'd have to answer for it someday. A workplace accident is definitely a believable excuse. Bay Village police ordered a polygraph test, but were told they needed permission from the county, and guess whose permission? Dr. Samuel Gerber, who spoke to Eberling and came to a decision. I don't think all this fuss is necessary. The killer is in jail, and Mr. Eberling has nothing to do with Marilyn's death. A polygraph is pointless. Bay Village police went above Gerber's head to get a polygraph test, but none of Eberling's answers showed deception, so they let him go. Still, it's suspicious that a potential suspect would be so hastily shot down by Gerber. It was another roadblock in Sam's legal team's search for the killer. The team was dealt a more debilitating blow in 1961, when Sam's lawyer, William Corrigan, died at the age of 75. The fight to free Sam from jail would have died with him, had it not been for a daring young lawyer looking to make his mark on the legal world. And this case would make his career. Ohio local F. Lee Bailey was a young, Harvard-educated lawyer who was barely 30 years old and itching to make a mark on the legal world. You may remember Bailey from the Boston Strangler episode of our Serial Killers podcast. Bailey also served on the defense team for O.J. Simpson and helped Simpson secure his acquittal. But Sam Shepard was the first accused husband that Bailey defended. After he asked the Shepherds to be Sam's new representative, he had his work cut out for him. By 1963, the Shepard case was dyed into the fabric of American society. It allegedly inspired the hit TV show The Fugitive. The show's creators denied that, but the series was about a doctor on the run 
after being wrongly accused of killing his wife. Sound familiar? Americans seemed sure that Sam was guilty, but now they were engrossed by the tale of a wrongly accused man. Was public perception shifting? Possibly. After all, even in jail, Sam had found himself a new girlfriend. Ariana Temen Johans was a wealthy German divorcee in her early 30s who saw Sam on the news around the time of his first trial. Convinced that Sam was innocent, she began writing him letters to tell him so. When Sam and Marilyn were young, they kept their love alive through letters. Now, Sam had a new letter-bound love affair. Sam, believe me, not everyone thinks you're guilty. You have a friend in Germany who will do whatever it takes to help you clear your name. With love, Ariana. P.S. Enclosed is a picture of me. I hope you like it. Ariana apparently contributed $250,000 to Sam's legal defense, so she definitely put her money where her heart was. But she had her own baggage. Her much older half-sister, Magda, had been married to Hitler's minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, and had killed herself in the bunker with the other Nazi leaders at the end of the war. Ariana insisted that she was anti-Nazi, but that didn't sell newspapers. Did you read the Cleveland Press? Sam Shepard's trading love letters with a German lady who was, get this, Joseph Goebbels' sister-in-law. A wife killer and a Nazi? Sounds like a match made in hell. Ariana traveled to the U.S. to meet Sam for the first time at a parole hearing in 1963. Soon after that, Sam made plans for their future together. Ariana, if I ever get out, will you marry me? Oh, Sam, yes, yes, of course. It wasn't so foolish of Sam to make plans because for once, his side seemed to be winning. Billy's drive to overturn the conviction grew when he heard shocking gossip at a 1964 meeting of the Overseas Press Club in Washington, D.C. It came from a familiar source, intrepid reporter Dorothy Kilgallen. She revealed that Judge Blythen approached her during the 1954 trial. Judge Blythen, I got your message. Heard you wanted to see me? Of course. I love you on What's My Line. You're a hoot. So, why come all the way out here from New York City? Oh, Your Honor, this trial contains all the ingredients for what we in the newspaper biz call a good murder. And besides that, there's the mystery of who actually killed this woman. People love a mystery. Mystery? Miss Kilgallen, it's an open and shut case. What do you mean by that? Well, there's no question about it. Sam Shepard is guilty as hell. Blythen's side has denied this story, but it's become an infamous part of the Shepard case lore, since it implies the judge's mind was made up before a verdict was even reached. Bailey filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, which means he reported Sam's imprisonment as unlawful and demanded that a court determine whether Sam was justifiably in prison or not. Bailey fought hard, and by July 1964, federal judge Carl Weinman declared Sam's trial a mockery of justice due to the media's undue influence on the court's opinion. Forty-year-old Sam was free. He immediately married Ariana. Things were looking up until prosecutors set out to retry Sam for Marilyn's murder. Sam Shepard's second trial began on October 24, 1966, over 12 years since Marilyn's murder. In 1954, the state of Ohio indicted Sam with first-degree murder charges. But they couldn't this time due to the rules of double jeopardy. So in 1966, they instead indicted him for second-degree murder charges. F. Lee Bailey worked hard to avoid the mistakes William Corrigan had made in the first trial. He kept both Sam and Susan Hayes off the stand and focused his arguments on Paul Kirk's new blood evidence from 1955. Also, unlike the previous trial, this jury was sequestered. It's important to note that this retrial wasn't about finding a new suspect in Marilyn's murder, but rather to prove it couldn't have been Sam. Gerber, who had been so confident in the 1954 trial, seemed decidedly less confident about the murder weapon when Bailey cross-examined him. 
Dr. Gerber, just what kind of surgical instrument do you see here? I'm not sure. Would it be an instrument you yourself have handled? I don't know if I've handled one or not. Of course, you have been a surgeon, have you, Doctor? No. Do you have such an instrument back at your office? Have you seen such an instrument in any hospital or medical supply catalog or anywhere else, Dr. Gerber? No, not that I can remember. Tell the jury, Doctor, where you have searched for the instrument during the last 12 years. Well, I have looked all over the United States. And you didn't describe this phantom impression as a surgical instrument just to hurt Sam Shepard's case, did you, Doctor? You wouldn't do that, would you? Oh, no. Oh, no. The trial focused on proving Sam's innocence. Paul Kirk's findings proved the killer was left-handed, used a weapon that wasn't a surgical tool, left blood at the scene that wasn't Sam's or Marilyn's, and would have had open wounds from when Marilyn fought back. To redirect suspicion from Sam even further, Bailey called Spencer and Esther Houck to the stand. Spencer and Esther were divorced at this point, indicating some acrimony between them that was advantageous for Bailey. He didn't expressly accuse them of the murder, but he did bring up Spencer's alleged crush on Merrill and questioned him quite pointedly about how familiar he was with the location of Marilyn's bedroom. His questions recalled a theory put forth in Paul Holmes' 1961 book, The Shepherd Murder Case. Holmes posited that Marilyn had an unnamed lover visit her on the night of July 3rd after Sam fell asleep on the couch. The man's wife then snuck into the house. Enraged, she attacked Marilyn and killed her. When Sam awoke, the man and the wife attacked him too. Holmes never named Spencer and Esther in his book, but since Spencer was already rumored to be Marilyn's lover, people connected the dots. At the 1966 trial, Bailey said in his opening statements that due to the relatively weak blows to Marilyn's head, the killer's strength could have been comparable to a woman's. Bailey also brought up the fact that Esther lit a fire in her home's fireplace on the morning of July 4th. Apparently, the weather was around 70 degrees that morning, so why light a fire? Bailey hoped to conjure up a scenario where one of the Hawks burned some bloody clothes in a hurry. But the thread was never seriously investigated, as it's likely Bailey only wanted to raise enough doubts to help a jury see that police could have considered other suspects in 1954. All of Bailey's efforts paid off, and Sam was declared not guilty on November 16th. 1966. Sam Shepard was a free man, innocent in the eyes of the law, and able to start a new life with his new wife, Ariana. But the question still remains. If Sam didn't kill Marilyn, who did? Sam Shepard was set free in 1966, but things got worse. Ariana divorced him a few years later in 1969, claiming he was a violent, cheating drunk. Incredibly, Sam tried to resume his career as an osteopathic surgeon, but the years in jail had been unkind to both his skills and his morale. Sam allegedly performed surgeries under the influence of alcohol. He apparently sometimes drank over a liter of liquor a day. He had two accidents in surgery that killed two patients. He was forced to resign. If Sam wasn't a killer before, he accidentally was one now. Things got more bizarre. In 1969, Sam began a short-lived career as a professional wrestler under the stage name Killer Shepherd. His next bride was the daughter of his wrestling manager. Her name was Colleen Strickland, and she was 20 years old. Sam was found dead at his home in Ohio on April 6, 1970, as the result of complications from alcoholism. He was only 46. In the year 2000, almost 45 years after Marilyn's murder, the case was subject to a third trial. This one spurred by Sam and Marilyn's son. Chip was now middle-aged, going by Sam Reese Shepard, and he was on a mission to find his mother's true killer and seek justice for the pain the state of Ohio had caused his father. His pursuit of the truth put him in touch with the journalist Cynthia Fletcher. Together, They'd write a book based on their findings. 
Sam Reese and Cynthia had a new suspect in mind, one that might have been under everyone's noses all along. It started in the late 1980s when Cynthia heard that a local Ohio man had been convicted of the 1984 killing of Ethel Mae Durkin, an elderly widow. The man was Richard Eberling, the window washer who stole Marilyn's rings and voluntarily admitted he'd bled all over the shepherd home. Eberling had done well for himself in the 1960s and 70s, becoming a private decorator and caretaker to several rich older women. He forged Ethel's will so that all her money would go to him, but investigators caught him after Ethel's mysterious death, which Eberling claimed was a fall caused by a heart attack. It turns out he had struck Ethel hard in the back of the neck, not unlike where Sam was struck on the night of the murder, and not unlike one of the many injuries Marilyn sustained while she was beaten to death. Eberling was in prison, serving a life sentence. But when Sam Reese and Cynthia reached out, he was only too happy to talk. Their first exchange came in the form of Richard's mysterious letters to Sam Reese. Your family has been with me a long time. Yes, Sam, I do know the entire story. Sam Reese and Cynthia visited Eberling in prison on numerous occasions. A lifelong history of mental illness and crime made him an unreliable source, but some of the things that he said were chilling. After a conversation with Chip, he drew a scarily accurate floor plan of the Shepherd home, which would certainly point to him being able to get in and out of the house on the night of the murder. He also demonstrated a certain fascination with Marilyn. Oh, Marilyn. She had that California look. Tight little brief shorts and a very little blouse. She was immaculate, all in white. Eberling had a troubled childhood, raised in a foster home, and some think he may have developed an obsession with Marilyn, who, from the outside, probably seemed like the perfect wife and mother. Would you have dated Marilyn Shepard if you had met her before Sam? Probably not. I was an orphan. She was a golden girl. A golden girl looks for position, and me, being a nobody, I wasn't good enough. Eberling allegedly told fellow inmates he was linked to Marilyn's murder, but when pressed by Sam Reese, he instead spun a very different tale. His theory starts off in a familiar way, that Esther killed Marilyn and Spencer Houck helped her cover it up. He claimed to know of Esther's suspicions as one day... Esther had come over to Marilyn and raged. Esther, hi! Spen was just here a minute ago. If you don't leave him alone, I'll kill you. But then his story took a turn. Poor Esther Hauk. Head going round and round like a merry-go-round. She thought that her husband and Marilyn were having a fling. But Spencer was seeing your father, Chip. Esther was right about the affair. Just wrong about the person. But I saw him once, in a hotel room. I was cleaning the windows. <laughs> Esther killed the wrong cheater. <laughs> Your daddy helped her and Spencer cover it up. There goes the neighborhood. While this story could be plausible, Richard Eberling was known to be mentally unwell, so this could have been a total fabrication. Eberling died in 1998, and along with him, whatever knowledge he actually possessed about the murder. Sam Reese Shepard eventually brought a suit against the state of Ohio in the 1990s, using the new Richard Eberling evidence to claim that the state had wrongfully imprisoned his father in the 1954 trial. While Sam's conviction was obviously overturned in 1966, Sam Reese was still seeking damages from the state. The case spurred a civil trial that ended in the year 2000. For the first time, DNA evidence was used, even if Marilyn, Sam, and Richard Eberling's bodies had to be exhumed in order to be tested. The DNA analysis finally confirmed what Paul Kirk found in 1955. The blood at the crime scene and on Sam's pants came from a third party. In addition, forensic analysts found traces of semen on the body that did not come from Sam. 
the semen was a genetic match for the blood. Due to the age and deterioration of these decades-old samples, DNA analysts couldn't conclusively say the blood and semen were Richard Eberling's. All they could say was that they very likely weren't Sam's. In turn, the defense for the state of Ohio took up a very familiar argument. Sam Shepard was a cheating husband with a temper who killed his wife because he was angry that he couldn't leave her. The third party's blood could have posed a problem, but the defense's explanation was that they couldn't be sure the blood samples hadn't been contaminated after decades of being in storage. They evoked enough reasonable doubt about the blood samples, such that their importance was downplayed. They even suggested a new murder weapon, a bedroom lamp that had not been seen at the crime scene, but which a former neighbor had asserted was usually on the table between Sam and Marilyn's separate beds. After a 10-week trial, an eight-person jury deliberated the case for just a few hours before issuing a verdict. Sam Reese had not provided enough proof that the state of Ohio had wrongfully imprisoned his father. And so, even though Sam was armed with a good suspect and DNA evidence that a third party was there that night, it wasn't enough to heal the pain the state of Ohio had caused him and his family. We don't know who killed Marilyn, but we have a good list of suspects. And there's Spencer Houck, and possibly his wife Esther. If Spencer was actually seeing Marilyn, or Sam, as Eberling once implied, I'd buy that an angry, jealous Esther took out her frustrations on Marilyn. Which would explain the fire that Esther lit in the fireplace on that warm July morning. Maybe there was evidence that needed burning. But Spencer and Esther were never seriously investigated. So maybe the affair was a rumor and the fire was an unfortunate coincidence. Still, if they had anything to do with Marilyn's death, it makes sense that Spencer and Esther would race back to the scene of the crime. Maybe to check that they didn't leave any evidence behind before calling the cops. Exactly. But though Spencer Houck was only 42, he walked with a limp. I doubt he'd have been able to successfully grapple with the perfectly fit 30-year-old Sam, both in the house and on the beach. I don't think Esther could have either. At worst, it seemed like Spencer was guilty of having a crush on Marilyn, which she perhaps reciprocated. So that leaves us with Richard Eberling. And though he's the most unreliable suspect, he could also be the most likely in retrospect. He had a history of mental illness dating back around the time to the suspicious death of his foster father. He knew the Shepherd home well thanks to his job there and would know how best to break in. He was arrested for stealing Marilyn's rings and spoke about her later like he was obsessed with her. Of course, there's the issue that Eberling was nearly bald back in 1954. Hardly bushy-haired, but he was known to own toupees which meant he could have worn one to disguise his identity on the night of the murder. But if Sam's struggle with a killer was as violent as he claimed, wouldn't a toupee have fallen off? True. Either way, it's clear Eberling was obsessed with Marilyn's death. And let's not forget, he was also in jail for killing a woman with a hard strike to the back of the neck. Eberling may have also been involved in the death of another woman in 1956. Barbara Kinzel was a young nurse who worked at Bayview Hospital and cared for Sam right after the murder. She and Eberling dated, but tragedy struck on July 5th, 1956, when Barbara was killed after her red Ford convertible hit a parked truck. Richard Eberling was driving her car at the time. Foul play wasn't suspected, but in hindsight, her connection to Sam and Bayview Hospital is worth pondering. As for Marilyn's murder, Eberling was never investigated back in 1954. Dr. Gerber chose to pursue the theory that Sam was the murderer. Who knows what they might have missed if they had treated Eberling like a proper suspect back then. If we assume that after the 1966 trial, Sam Shepard truly was innocent. Then making Richard Eberling our top suspect makes sense. A troubled window washer with a crush on an unhappy wife and mother 
observing all the romantic drama happening under Bay Village's perfect surface. And fully capable of breaking into the house whose floor plan he remembered 40 years later. Prosecutors made a big deal of the fact that the Shepherd family dog would have barked if a stranger entered the house. But Richard Eberling did regular work for a lot of people in the neighborhood. Maybe to the dog, he was no stranger at all. It's a sad fact that most of the lore surrounding Marilyn Shepard's murder involves her husband, Sam. It makes sense since he was the surviving party that the entire country suspected. But it almost feels unfair that both trials focused intensely on Sam rather than on a wider search for the identity of the killer. Sam was the center of attention when Marilyn was alive and continued to be when she died. But perhaps, with the continued efforts of her son, we'll one day discover who really killed Marilyn Shepard. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Amin Osman and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Z Cruz, Kimberly Holland, Nick Masu, and Steve Pinto. Unsolved Murders.